Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Everything Compliance is now the award-winning Everything Compliance, having won the top talk show in podcasting award by W3. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to episode 101 of Everything Compliance. Today we have the quintet of myself, Tom Fox, Matt Kelly, Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, and Karen Woody. We take a deep dive into the recently announced Glencore FCPA and CFTC settlement. As usual, shout-outs and rants follow, and many of us have somber shout-outs and rants about the tragedy in Uvalde. But I know you'll enjoy episode 101 of Everything Compliance, the Glencore edition. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our live edition of Everything Compliance. Today, we have the quartet of Jonathan Armstrong, who apparently is not a cat, Jonathan Marks, Matt Kelly, and Karen Woody. I'm Tom Fox, your host, and today we're going to take up the Glencore settlement, which came down last week. Karen, if I could start with you, uh, could you kind of give us the background facts? And although this was not an SEC enforcement action, what maybe uh, intrigued you uh, about this particular enforcement action. Thanks, Tom. It's good to be back. I'm sorry I've missed a couple of days, but uh, I'm happy to be here. And I'm very excited to talk about today's topic because this is a company I've had my eye on for over a decade. And why is that? Well, in the last 10 years, at least, this company has managed to combine two of my primary areas of scholarship and research, which involves conflict minerals and the FCPA. And we find it all in one with this company. So Glencore, um, at least as a few years ago, and I think it's probably about in the same range, is one of the world's largest mining companies, certainly by revenue. And it is a massive, uh, important commodities trader. So it is one of the largest suppliers of things like zinc and cobalt in the world, which, of course, go into a number of products that are used uh, by you know, billions of people around the world. So what is Glencore? Glencore is a company that was founded actually in 1974 by a guy named Mark Rich. You know, it used to be called, uh, I think, Rich, Mark Rich and Company. Um, and so he alone has an interesting uh, past and story about Mark Rich. And another reason I think that makes this particular settlement and to this week's news on Glencore is because it is a company that is one of the most scandal-ridden companies you've never really heard of. Um, Glencore and its predecessor company named after its founder uh, has been accused of various uh, illegal activity for decades. And this starting with being involved in Iraq when Saddam Hussein and getting around sanctions related to Iraq, getting around sanctions involving apartheid in South Africa, sanctions in Iran, 
It was cited in 2004 by the CIA as having paid over $3 million in illegal kickbacks to get around um, sanctions issues, especially related to uh, the state-run oil programs out of Iraq. Um, it's also been accused of things like environmental um, violations, child labor in a number of its African mines. In fact, I think Mark Rich, the founder, was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list for years and eventually was pardoned by Bill Clinton. Uh, so that's just that's sort of the, the foundation of this, which I think will tee us up for what I assume some of us will talk about, which will be even just the general culture at this company. There are some other notorious figures who've been in this company's orbit. For example, Tony Hayward, the famous CEO at BP during Deepwater Horizon tragedy and subsequent oil pill, was able to parachute out of that job and into the chairman position at the board of Glencore. Um, also, Glencore was prominently featured in the Paradise Papers, which some of us might remember. It was about five or six years ago. was a leak of uh, a cache of documents that dealt with some of the um, problems related to paying off uh, mining officials in Africa and in Congo. And one of the very important players in that um, scandal was a guy named Dan Gertler, who's an Israeli billionaire and mining ma magnate, who really was used by Glencore to secure a number of uh, contracts in the DRC by paying off people like allegedly one as high up as the president, Joseph Kabila. And actually, because of that, we saw Glencore and Dan Gertler in particular named or at least uh, alluded to in a previous FCPA case for Oxif that some of us recall from a few years ago. Mm -hmm. So this case, Glencore's in the news this week for another major FCPA settlement. This settlement is with both the Justice Department and also with the CFTC, the Commodities Future Trading Commission. So this involves a sprawling decade-long investigation into the company and a subsidiary company that uh, is Glencore Limited, which is a Swiss-based commodity mining company. So what is happening? And the settlement says that essentially the company has paid over $100 million in bribes um, around the world. So there are corrupt payments that involve West Africa, Nigeria, Cameroon, Ivory Coast, Equatorial Guinea some involving South America, Brazil and Venezuela, and also Central Africa, well, the DRC, uh, Democratic Pong uh, Republic of Congo. So what are we doing? In the West Africa, there's over $80 million being paid to intermediary companies. It really reads sort of like, you know, uh, a textbook, almost law school exam of what would be FCP FCPA violations disguising illegal payments using sham consulting agreements, inflating inventories, the books and records are a mess, paying taxing consultants to issue fraudulent invoices. Um, that's kind of what's happening in uh, the African area. In South America, there's, again, um, corrupt payments uh, made to consultants, also uh, allegations of paying off um, judges to make certain violations go away. It's an unbelievable, sprawling, incredible uh, read when you really read through um, the documents from the Justice Department and the CFTC. And so they, Glencore has now entered guilty pleas for the FCP, FCPA violations and the commodities price manipulation scheme. 
And all told, it likely will pay over $1.5 billion to resolve these investigations from the U.S., the Brazilian, and potentially uh, the regulators also in the U.K. So we're talking astronomical fines here, $428 million in criminal forfeiture and disgorgement of over $272 million. That's to the DOJ. To the CFTC, we're talking about, you know, again, we're looking at numbers that are like $1.1 in a civil monetary penalty of over $865 million, disgorgement of $320 million. All of this means that this particular settlement lands Glencore and the illustrious list of the top 10 of sort of uh, highest fines in relation to an FCPA violation. That's at least according to uh, the calculators over at the FCPA blog and elsewhere. Um, so this was, again, a, a sweeping, massive investigation. It went over a decade and involves multiple countries. But at the end of the day, it was uh, absolutely necessary and one that I think um, is, is not surprising given the history that we've seen with this company and certainly some of the leadership and characters that seem to be, uh, again, in this company's orbit. So that's the lay of the land. So Karen, in terms of the, uh, here's the question I wanted to ask you, why isn't the Securities and Exchange Commission involved in this case? That's a great question. Um, the SEC, I think because there's so much happening here, um, the SEC likely, because there's already civil disgorgement going all around here and where the uh, Glencore is traded, um, I think this is really more of a price move, a commodities issue. And the, the CFTC is really picking up, uh, piggybacking here with the DOJ and the SEC is really taking the back seat. So I actually think because these are such massive penalties that are covering so much more of the waterfront that the SEC didn't, um, didn't weigh in. And how do you think a company begins to make a comeback from 20, 30 perhaps even longer years of having a business model that incorporates corruption and other unethical behaviors. Well, I mean, that's, that's why, that's what we sit on everything compliance talk about. I mean, this is going to have to be such an unbelievable uh, adjustment, but the thing is it's, it's not surprising when you look over the last, you know, 20, 30 years of what this company has been doing and how it's been, um, you know, dinged or like had allegations against it time and again, and sort of every major, even FCPA things, we've seen them in Octave, we've seen them in other things that I, I do think it's amazing that, you know, the question of how effective maybe these fines are in terms of deterrence or changing corporate culture, I, it, I, it'll be interesting to see. It's really good. I mean, for starters, Tony Hayward is now leaving as chairman. Um, and I think sort of, uh, relevant to this settlement going through, I think that sort of will be one of the precipitating acts for him to now leave. And there'll be new leadership, at least on the board, but it's going to take a lot to really change what seemed to be effectively a business model of hiring mercenaries to pay off um, government officials around the world, to pay off judges, to pay off. I mean, it does seem to be that that's how they've done business for quite some time. So it's going to take a lot, I think, to rewrite the ship. Matt Kelly, you have written and podcasted about the topic of CCO certification. Mm -hmm. And now we have our first example dead in front of us. What issues do you see uh, 
is there a new class of criminal liability created by this requirement? Uh, is this good, positive for the CCO, for the DOJ? Where do you shake out on those questions for Glencore? Well, it's an interesting point because I think the best answer to a lot of the questions you just asked is I don't know um, because we haven't seen this before and we still have a lot of questions this will work. Uh, let me just back up for a moment and explain about what this actually is. Uh, I will sneak in and answer, Tom, to your last question to Karen about what Glencore is doing. Um, they are mounting a charm offensive now to talk about all of the things they're doing. They even put out a special report, uh, I think the day after or the day of the announced settlement, where they talked about this big revamped compliance program that they are launching and have launched. And uh, they have gotten rid of the offending executives to bring in new leaders. Uh, they did hire a new head of compliance, a man named Daniel Silver, who arrived, I believe, two years ago. Uh, they revamped their business partner management, scaled back the use a lot of a lot of these intermediaries, all this stuff, put out a very nice, slick, special report about just the compliance. Um, it kind of reminds me of what Walmart used to do back in the mid-2010s when it was still rose of its big FCPA and Walmart put out an annual report about its compliance and ethics improvements. This kind of sorta looks like what Walmart did, maybe a first iteration of it. I have no idea if Glencore will keep on publishing some sort of updated ethics and compliance statement year after. But tying into the CCO, sir, I think it's important to note that two other elements here at uh, uh, Glencore had to agree to for a not just one but two monitors, two independent compliance monitors. Uh, one for Glencore's parent in the UK, I think, or in Switzerland. One for the corporate parent, and one for Glencore Limited, which is the U.S. subsidiary. So two separate compliance monitors happening at at the same time for the next three. Um, they're not getting a deferred prosecution agreement because they plead so there's nothing to defer there like prosecution essentially you know, got settled out and happened uh but it's a three-year deal and we have this cco certification that will need to happen so as of right now um glencore's ceo and its chief compliance officer mr silverman um they will both need to certify the business of the compliance program 30 days before the expiration of the plea agreement. Now, it's a three-year plea agreement. It was signed last month, so they'll need to sign their certification, I guess, sometime around May of 2025. Um, Glencore will also need to make annual progress reports to the Justice Department, assuring that its compliance program improvements are continuing and that the discovery of any new misconduct is disclosed properly. Um, so of the this... Now, I still have a lot of questions about how actually is this all supposed to work in practice? And I'll give you a very simple example. So what happens if Silver isn't the compliance officer three years from now? Um, you know, what if he takes another job? What if he's abducted by aliens? What if he gets hit by a bus? Um, you know, the idea of a compliance officer signing annual certifications, especially a CCO signing a certification three years from now, I, I quite 
question how that might work with normal personnel turnover that comes and goes. So if Mr. Silver isn't the chief compliance officer at that time, will the successor have to sign it? Um, will he or she have to agree to that as part of their employment agreement? Um, what if the new chief compliance officer decides, I don't like what we've been doing. I want to revamp this whole program that we've been certifying for two years. Uh, what if they want to reinvestigate their whole thing to make sure that this is all up to their own standards? Um, it's a nifty idea in theory, but in practice, you know, what if the C says, yes, I think we can certify, but the CEO says, no, I don't. What if it's vice versa and your boss, the CEO, wants to certify, but you, the chief compliance officer, you don't. How is this supposed to work with two independent compliance monitors also looking over your shoulder? Why are we doing this at all? Isn't this a bit repetitive? Like the monitor is the one who's going to be reporting back to the Justice Department. So do we need this? Like, come on, does anybody think we are at the end of the road in finding new examples of misconduct with Glenn? Because I don't. I would bet my mortgage that at some point we're going to find out, oops, we also had this thing over here that we didn't know or didn't report yet. So going to be then revisited. Like, There's so much here that in the devil is in the details that we just stand. How's this going to work in practice? That uh, I like, I still have a lot of big issues with CCO certification. And I know there are a lot of compliance officers who feel uncomfortable with this idea. They think there's going to be liability issues that might arise from it. If not from the Justice Department, certainly maybe for employer. Um, you know, are they going to say you were supposed to be in charge of this and now we can't certify? You're fired. I, you know, these are not holes that are very far-fetched, in my opinion. So, Matt, what about the issue of potential criminal liability for a CCO? Uh, some commentators have said that because of the guilty plea and because of the court approval of this, this could take a CCO certification really to a new level of personal liability. Any thoughts on that one way or the other? I absolutely think that it is one of those not far-fetched at all. So that's a very valid question. Um, you know, Jonathan Marks, I know you're going to be piping up saying we could have DNO insurance. And I think sending DNO insurance to compliance officers would be a good idea, but somebody's going to have to pay for that. Uh, the company might not want to necessarily do this. You know, what if you, the compliance officer, are demanding it? Can you make it part of your employment agreement? What if the company doesn't want it? Um, I think that there are all sorts of ways that you know, we could still have questions about this. And I suppose my big issue would be that if we want to do that, if we, the Justice Department, if the Justice Department wants to do this, okay, put out a policy statement. So far, all we have are some speeches from the Assistant Attorney General, Kenneth Polite, and we don't have any sort of formal declaration like we do about compliance monitors, like we do about the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, like we do about guidance on effective compliance programs, this is a big deal to compliance professionals. It requires then the Justice Department dropping it in a speech that we're going to do this, and then we all read about it in paragraph 19 of a settlement agreement. There should be more for compliance officers to get this into their comfort zone. Jonathan Marks, do you have a question for Matt? 
Well, I, I think Matt's comment should be, for everybody listening, you should replay it back because they're spot on. And even more importantly, you know, if you're a chief compliance officer today, game's changed. You know, it's just like chief audit executives with the passage of Sarbanes-Oxley, you know, and next thing you know, the CEO and or the principal officer and the principal financial officer are signing off. But we all know what's happened to the chief audit executive role over the years. You know, as time went on, that target became brighter. And I think that's exactly what's happening with the chief compliance officer here. And so, you know, if you're a chief, look, it's impossible for a large organization for a chief compliance officer to get their arms wrapped around all the things they need to get their arms wrapped around and certify in a way that probably will be meaningful to most people. And I think that's really where this is all going is, you know, what does this all mean? What does it look like? You know, what should we imply from it? But if you don't have insurance and you're not going to be properly representative as a chief compliance officer or a chief audit executive today, you might want to think twice about signing up for truck driver school like I did at one point. You know, Tom, if I could just respond to a couple of points that Jonathan brought up. And I mean, Jonathan's also spot on here. Um, so number one, another practical scenario. What if the company doesn't have a chief compliance officer? Uh, what if you only have like a senior director of corporate compliance and ethics? Is that person going to certify? Will part of the settlement be that that person gets promoted to chief compliance officer or you have to establish a CCO role? We don't know. Um, and the closest parallel that I can think of uh, comes from compliance officer liability in the broker dealer world where they are registered under the Investment Advisors uh, Investment Companies Act of 1940 they are in charge of administering a compliance program. So if you are administering the program and it has a failure, have you violated that law? Um, FINRA, the regulator for broker dealers, has gone to great lengths to say, no, no, we don't want this. Everybody, please do not freak out. Um, and by and large, the incidents in that field of chief compliance officer liability, the CCO deserves it because they were in on the misconduct. They were grossly negligent, you know, asleep at the switch. And I don't have much sympathy for them. But FINRA recently put out a policy document set, failure to supervise flows from the people who are the supervisory executives at the firm. And that is not a compliance officer. FINRA says the chief, compliance, the chief executive or the president or the general manager of the broker dealer, that's the supervisor. And that person has supervisory responsibility. And then FINRA in the next breath said, unless they delegate it to the compliance officer, which you can do. And I was like, oh, man, here we go again with the complexity. Um, so there's a lot of ways that you could still have this liability on a practical daily basis flow down to a more junior executive. And at a large company, yes, the CCO would be junior to the CEO. You know, like you could have people trying to foist this liability onto the chief compliance officer against his or her, you know, true will in their heart. And you know, like I said, we really need a more clear policy statement from the Justice Department in writing, not in a speech, to try and answer a lot of these questions, because it will be a big sea change in the fullness of time if we really make this a mainstream thing. I, I, I think on the insurance point, though, we needn't take it as a given that insurance is always going to be available to bad uh, offenders. You yeah. know, if if. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of kids can't drive on the road because no one will insure them. The cyber insurance market is hardening, particularly against those who've already had cyber breaches. And yeah, you might get insurance from somebody somewhere, you know, an obscure Lloyd syndicate, but at what price? So the difficulty, I think, for a lot of incoming CCOs will not only be to make sure that they're insured, but that that insurance is maintained. You know, we have had experience in the past where we've had clients where they say, you know, you have to have the policy in place. And by the way, we want the insurers to notify our client direct if that policy doesn't get renewed. And, and, and CCOs are going to have to look at steps like that, particularly if they're in a business that's had difficulty and particularly as the insurance market hardens. Yeah, and just really one quick comment here with all of this. You know, I mean, gone are the days where, and I, I laugh because I get these calls all the time. Hey, you know, um, and I know Matt, Matt does some of this too, but if you're a chief compliance officer out there and you're working for a publicly traded company, and you're go check your compensation because guess what? If, if you're going to be signing off on this stuff, the juice better be worth the squeeze. Yep. You better be making some serious coin these days, you know, if that's what, if you're going to be sitting in that hot seat. And I got news for you. I mean, you know, people are not realizing that yet. And some people are, you know, still, you know, still meandering their way around. But I think that whole, that whole, this whole, this whole issue here with this certification could be a huge game changer. Because I, I remember that very vividly with internal audit, you know, internal audit was the stepchild in the corner. And I don't mean that disparagingly, but they were, and now they're not. And now some, you know, chief audit executives are making real money. Um, I know chief compliance officers to some degree are making some money, but the whole comp structure for all this is absolutely going to change. And I think, you know, instead of sort of a standard, hey, we're going to hire a chief compliance officer anymore, you're going to have to go hire a labor attorney and make sure that you do have, you know, all these things built into your contract and agreement. And, you know, if in fact, there, you know, there are clauses to punch out. Well, Jonathan Marks, uh, let me turn to you and ask you to sort of pick up on that point. Where do you see the role of internal audit for Glencore now? And how could internal audit really help a chief compliance officer satisfy the conditions of the guilty plea? Well, uh, let, let's back up for one second. My, my big question is, where were they to begin with? You know, you know, we live in a world of risk and we're supposed, you know, if you look at the countries that this company operated in um, and operates in, I mean, they're all high risk countries. You know, I, I can't for the life of me figure out why some of this has not meandered its way up somewhere. Um, and I don't know whether that that got quashed or or, you know, somebody was controlling all of this. Somebody, you know, the audit committee was controlling the audit plan and only they were only focusing on certain things. You know, these things happen. But if you're a board member today, I mean, before we get to internal audit, if you're a board member today, you should be asking those tough questions. Um, you know, and I, I don't know how, you know, that's great that they replaced them all. But, um, you know, how many of those people that were replaced absolutely, absolutely breached their you know, fiduciary duty of care um, in, in all of this. And I mean, I'm not a lawyer by any stretch of the imagination, but I do know the concept there. And I can't believe for the life of me that, you know, over this period of time that someone never asked a tough question. Now let's roll this into internal audit. Where were you? What are you doing? 
Um, you know, what's going on? How can they help? If you're going to truly build a risk resilient process, um, and we've talked about this ad nauseum, you know, internal audit compliance and the legal function have to be in harmonization. They have to be, you know, working together. They need to be understand what, the, you know, what they're doing. You know, I think internal audit can add some real value here from, you know, a continuous auditing and continuous monitoring perspective if a program was put in properly. And that's another thing, too. I mean, that, you know, that this whole thing kind of brought out to me. The importance, if you look at what the regulators are saying, they kept talking about feedback and using feedback to constantly enhance your compliance program. You know, uh, continuous auditing, continuous monitoring, everybody thinks it's sort of, you know, it's a really neat thing to say, but nobody really understands it. They don't. You know, and if you don't know what the objective is to, to start with, then it, I would bet dollars to donuts you're probably doing it wrong. But if you do it right, um, and I have instances where we've helped organizations implement this the right way, giving the right information, getting the right feedback, using that feedback appropriately, it could be really, really effective. And that's where internal audit, I think, can help. You know, using, using the data um, to tell a story, but using the right data for the right reasons and having the right people monitor this is really ultra critical. Um, I heard the other day, someone said, well, we're going to go out and buy a software package. I'm like, that's fantastic, but that's not going to solve your problem. And for anybody out there listening, if you think you can go out and buy a software package and it's going to solve all your ills, that's, you know, I'll, I got swampland in, in, uh, in Florida that I'll sell you as well. So, but, you know, getting back to internal audit and I'll close off my comments, you know, I go back to the same thing. Where were you? And why isn't anybody saying anything about it? But if, Tom, to your point, if you're really going to help and you're really going to build that, you know, um, you know, an a risk resilient enterprise ecosystem, you have to be coordinated with compliance and you have to be coordinated with legal and management has to be held accountable for all of this as well. Otherwise, it really just doesn't work. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back with more Everything Compliance. So, Mr. Armstrong, sailing across the pond, you are more than an observer uh, because the Serious Fraud Office has participated in this resolution. And uh, as I think uh, both Matt and Karen noted, uh, Glencore had a UK subsidiary who was involved, at least in the settlement. Uh, what do you see uh, in this case and uh, where does the SFO go with this? Yeah, it, good question, Tom. I think the important thing about Glencore, it, you know, it isn't like the World Series where only the US is in, uh, interested. Uh, uh, Brazil have already uh, settled um, uh, uh, their case. I'll talk about the UK in a minute. There's ongoing uh, investigations in the Netherlands and Switzerland as well. And there truly is an international as aspect to this, I think. The SFO's investigation started in June 2019. We're hampered a little bit about what we can say because of the rules in the UK. We've a pending court hearing. But uh, on the SFO's, uh, uh, SFO's case seems to involve oil operations for Glencore in Cameroon, Equatorial Guinea, Ivory Coast, Nigeria and South Sudan. And the SFO alleges that uh, Glencore and its agents and employees paid some $25 million to get 
oil rights in those countries. Uh, as I've said, the SFO it has been working with the US authorities and is still working, it seems, with Netherlands and Switzerland. There's a hearing in London on the 21st of June, and uh, Glencore will then be asked to say how they plead. There are seven charges against them, five under Section 1 of the Bribery Act 2010. So they're what you might call hardcore bribery offences. And two under Section 7. Section 7 was this new section that was brought in by the 2010 Act of failure to prevent bribery. They will probably, I'm guessing, relate to failure to supervise agents, failure to have proper processes and procedures in place. You'll remember that this associated persons, this, this need to supervise agents and people you contract with is important in the, um, in, in, in the, in the Bribery Act. Um, so in terms of what's public and on the record, that's all we can say at the moment. Of course, Glencore have the right to turn up at uh, trial and say that they're innocent or guilty. But Glencore have said that they intend to plead guilty uh, at this hearing uh, on the 21st. Uh, and as Karen said, they've, rever they've reserved a whole bunch of money to settle cases. And they say that they've reserved 166 million US for non-US matters. They've said it will be for the judge to set the level of fine in the UK, but they think it will be within the reserve that they've provided. In Switzerland, there seems to be a somewhat similar uh, set of uh, uh, proceedings in place. Uh, from what I understand, it's something similar to the failure to prevent provisions that the Swiss authorities are relying on. Uh, and of course, the Netherlands uh, have a role to play here. They've also been involved in some of the US-led investigations uh, in telco, telcos, for example. And I think this whole thing tells us that the global fight against anti-bribery is getting more global. It used to be the case that the US authorities were the only sheriff in town. But now I think many organizations have to look at their risk holistically and have to look at the fact that different regulators may be involved. And in some jurisdictions, it may be easier to get prosecutions than others. I think you had a couple of supplementals there. What does this mean for the SFO? What does this mean for individuals? Well, even if uh, the convictions go against the corporation, that doesn't necessarily stop the SFO pursuing individuals. Like in the US, they've had fairly limited success with cases against uh, individuals, but the odd uh, one or two uh, have, have stuck, including in oil cases. Uh, and I guess the other question is, Will all of this save the current director of the SFO? It's been a few months of turmoil. Maybe you could say more than a few months for the uh, director of the SFO. Obviously, we've talked previously about the Una Oil prosecution, which is somewhat unhelpful 
from uh, the director's point of view, a, a court found that she had had side chats with a fixer for some co-defendants. So that wasn't an ideal situation. And to have the director criticized in court is, um, is not a great look. Uh, we've had the collapse of the Serco trial. That's subject to an investigation by a leading QC. The Una Oil case is uh, under investigation by a former judge. Uh, both of those reports, we're told, are imminent. The UK Attorney General promised the judge-led report by the end of May. It is the end of May. We haven't seen it. We can't necessarily expect either of those uh, investigations to exonerate the current director. Obviously, U.S. relations are tense or have been tense, despite cases like Glencore. We know, for example, from an employment tribunal case brought by Tom Martin, a proper SFO, uh, a former SFO uh, em, uh, employee, that, that, that those relations weren't great. And we also have had some uh, proceedings involving ENRC, another uh, mining's minerals uh, operation, where uh, let's just say some of the conduct was less than ideal as well. For we should state that this isn't at the door of the current director, but two directors uh, previous uh, um, have, I think, some questions to answer, particularly in the way in which they liaised with the law firm who ought to have been representing ENRC and was clearly motivated by other things, uh, including the promises that he'd made to a US uh, law firm when joining them of being able to land big investigations. Now, of course, none of this looks good. The director has had a uh, not good appearance before a UK parliamentary committee. I think other administrations perhaps would have parted ways with the director somewhat earlier. Um, you might ask, why does Boris Johnson uh, protect somebody who isn't seen as being hard on corruption? Now, I'm dressed casually because it's been the Queen's, uh, the celebration of the Queen's Jubilee today and the Thanksgiving service in St. Paul's. A pro-monarchy crowd outside St. Paul's Cathedral booed Boris Johnson. Part of the reason that they booed Boris Johnson is, I think, to put it bluntly, they think either he's had his fingers in the till or people close to him have had their fingers in the till. And some might say that the reason that Boris Johnson wants a weakened SFO is because they might not shine the spotlight on some of the PPE deals that have been done during the pandemic, where courts have said that there are questions to ask. Um, I have no inside track on this, but um, you always worry about politicians who keep in place prosecutors that are not perceived to be doing their job, particularly when politicians are trying to rewrite ethics codes to protect themselves and people close to them. Other listeners will have other ideas, I'm sure. 
Jonathan Marks, you have a question or comment for Mr. Armstrong? Yeah, Jonathan, you know I like you. You're a good guy. But can you tell me what the SFO is? Because I never really heard of them. <laughs> They're the serious fraud office. No, no, no I, I understand. <laughs> I mean, are they actually operating? I, I think they, I mean, to be honest, there, there have been some cases that have come. You know, we've had oil as a real area of focus. Some of the unit oil uh, prosecutions uh, have, have stuck. Some of the investigations do seem to be coming to fruition, but they haven't had a good couple of years, it's fair to say. So I'm going to just raise a few comments and questions around the monitorship. Matt pointed out that uh, this case is somewhat anomalous because there are going to be two monitors. We've seen that in a couple of other instances previously. I think uh, Odebrecht being one of the, the biggest examples. But I'm going to read from the independent compliance monitor requirements set out in the plea agreement. The monitor's primary responsibility is to assess and monitor the company's compliance with the agreement to specifically address and reduce the risk of recurrence within misconduct. That's the first sentence of the monitor's obligation. And that really points to uh, the concept or the um, thoughts that Lisa Monaco put forward last October in her speech to the ABA White Collar conference of the reorientation of monitorships in FCPA and other cases. I think the department felt like on one instance or on one level, uh, one, there was too much recidivism and that was hammered home again this week when actually yesterday uh, Tadaris settlement was announced. We have, so we have yet another FCPA recidivist but I also get the sense that they didn't like the way corporations were navigating their post-NPA, post-DPAs, post-other settlement resolutions without a monitor. And this seems to be uh, an evolving theme from the Department of Justice, and I certainly invite uh, the panel's comments, but the department wants to not only have successful monitorships, but they want companies um, to abide by the terms of those agreements. And it seems to me that uh, they didn't feel like they were getting that. If you think about the evolution of monitors uh, in the middle part of the first decade of this year, almost every company was assigned a monitor. And uh, there was uh, certainly monitor abuses and uh, there was commentary and pushback against the Department of Justice around these. I thought the department answered that um, commentary and pushback. And then the department in the form of the Benchkowski memo uh, basically said monitors would be disfavored. And now uh, it really leads to the DOJ keeping their finger in the company's pocket for a period, at least with Glencore, of up to three years. So typically when you have a guilty plea, um, that's the end of it. You pled guilty and you get assigned your penalty, whatever that may be. In the criminal world, it can be incarceration. It can also be a fine and penalty. But here we're extending out the Department of Justice's role uh, going forward. And that seems to me to be a sort of a philosophical shift in the DOJ's approach 
to settlement of FCPA cases. I certainly understand a monitorship in the context of a DPA and NPA, but here we have a guilty plea agreement and a monitorship or two monitorships imposed. So I think uh, what Lisa Monaco communicated to us last October uh, really came to fruition uh, in this case. And I know several people on this panel questioned why some of the earlier cases before this didn't have monitors. We don't know the answer to that question, but we do have that question answered in this case. And for the Department of Justice to take a continuing role in not only making sure that or trying to make sure that recidivism doesn't happen, but also to really incorporate uh, best practices compliance program into a corporation and test that effectiveness, I think extends the reach of the DOJ and really may open up a new era of uh, DOJ, not simply robust enforcement, but uh, robust continuing oversight by the Department of Justice. Uh, I've been in one of those situations. Uh, I certainly understand what it can mean for a company. And we seem to now uh, have evolved, or at least the DOJ's thinking has evolved. Uh, I have lots of questions about how it ties into the CCO certification. And Matt raised many of those in, in his remarks. Uh, we'll simply have to see how that plays out. If a monitor signs off and a CCO doesn't certify, what does that mean? Conversely, if a CCO certifies, but a monitor doesn't sign off, what does that mean? All open questions uh, that we have at this point, and we don't know the answer to, and we may not for three years or even three years plus. Uh, Glencore uh, is going to be under scrutiny, and I hope that they understand that. And whether or not this monitor can really work to change the culture of the company, I think is going to be a very interesting question uh, going forward. So uh, with that, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are now on to fan favorites, shout outs and rants. So uh, in keeping with our tradition of the same order, uh, Karen, we'll start with you, Matt over to you, then to Mr. Marks and then Mr. Armstrong, and uh, I will bat fifth uh, this episode. So Karen Woody, do you have a shout out or a rant for us? You know, today I decided to go with a shout out because I imagine that a number of my colleagues here are going to have some rants or have some pretty heavy things to discuss given the state of the world and of affairs. So I tried to take a minute today to give a shout out to things that brought me some much needed respite from the news. And so my shout out today is to the national and state parks. Um, I spent a lot of this past weekend out in Indiana, near Bloomington, Indiana. I spent a lot of time on Lake Monroe, which is a man-made lake just outside Bloomington, Indiana. Beautiful, lovely place. And it's lovely because so much of the lake is surrounded by Hoosier National Forest, meaning that there aren't many houses within view from the lake. And so you're able to just spend some time on whatever kind of watercraft you may be on. For my kids, it was a tube pulled by a speedboat. But uh, I did appreciate there was this nice haven where you can really just look and see trees and occasional hawk and water, and you can take a minute to separate yourself from the horrific news we were all inundated with, the state of affairs of a number of our governments, and a lot of other things that uh, feel overwhelming. So places like that, I think, are a bomb uh, amidst all this chaos, and I was grateful to get some time to spend um, some time in a beautiful place 
so my shout out is to national and state parks and the mental and physical health benefits they give to all of us when we seem to very much need them. So for that, I will then turn over to others who might have less optimistic things to say today. Matt Kelly, do you have a shout out or rant for us today? Uh, I have both, actually. I'm going to give a very quick shout out to the Boston Celtics, who won the first game of the NBA Finals last night. Somewhat to my surprise, I am a lifelong Boston Celtics fan because I grew up here. I was a fan even when they were terrible. Uh, I did think that they would prevail over the Miami Heat to get here, and then I thought they would start losing promptly to Golden State. They have not yet so far. And good Lord, they might actually beat the Golden State Warriors. But actually, I, um, I do want to rant not about the shooting in Uvalde, because if I did, I would be here all day and probably work myself into a stroke like most Americans, because I am so outraged about that. Uh, I am going to give a much more mild rant in keeping with our Glencore uh, subject today. I want to actually rant about the Justice Department not being clear on the CCO certifications and specifically Assistant Attorney General Kenneth Polite, uh, he has a habit of very good, meaty, thoughtful, important for compliance officers, which then do not get published by the Justice Department website. And for those of you who are not total news nerds like me, uh, the Justice Department news website does regularly publish the full text of speeches from senior DOJ officials, uh, including in the past, the assistant attorney general of the criminal division, who these days is Mr. Polite. And so far, he has now given at least two speeches this year I can think of about CCO certification and about how compliance officers should think about compliance programs and how they should deal with the Justice Department. These are important things for this audience and for corporate compliance generally. And nary a peep from the Justice Department news website about what he actually said. And so we suddenly have to go and hunt this down from transcripts or video replays or something like that. Um, also in this vein, we have not, as I mentioned earlier, seen a formal policy statement from the Justice Department about CCO certification. So I am not going to demand that they start publishing Mr. Polite's speeches, the full text and whatnot, but I would request politely, diplomatically, pretty please with sugar on top, Mr. Polite and the Justice Department, please. You guys are talking about important things. You should not just keep that bottled up to whatever speech that he might be giving to the audience in the room. Publish the text of these speeches on the website of the Justice Department so the rest of us can see it promptly and really digest it and understand it. And the sooner you start doing that, DOJ, the better. So that's my rant. And now I'm done. Jonathan Marks, what do you have for us today? Well, my rant was, my rant was going to be about the, um, the report that Glencore actually issued, I think it was in, in May. I can't remember the exact date, May 24th, the ethics and compliance program report that they put out. Yep. Um, you're going to put out a report like this, at least say something, please. Um, maybe I have a scorecard on the 11 hallmarks of compliance and where you actually are. Don't list that you've done 50 audits. Tell me where the, you know, where, you know, tell me whether, you know, kind of what's going on here. I read through this thing like 18 different times. And every time I read it, I felt like I knew nothing more. Um, I don't consider myself to be the brightest bulb in the batch, but I, I, I really didn't get 
too much out of this other than a bunch of numbers and some pretty pictures on a, on a piece of paper. So, I mean, if you're going to issue a compliance report to the world, you know, to me, there should be at least something in there about, you know, how the whole thing's really coming together and, and what's really going on, not just the fact that, you you know, throwing up numbers there and how many audits that you did, how many effective audits were there, you know, how many, you know, what does your remediation plan look like? You know, you, you talk about this, but I think the word audit's actually mentioned three times in the whole thing. You know, and one time it says we have the right skills. I don't even know what those skills are, and I don't think they do either. So that's that's kind of my rant. I mean, you know, I think too often corporate America puts out garbage, and I think in this particular situation, I, I would classify this as pretty close to being garbage. So thanks for that. And then my second rant, actually, my my actually it's a shout out, which is really rare for me. Thank you, Philadelphia Phillies, for firing Joe Girardi. Um, when you have a team that does not come together and does not gel with that type of talent, there's usually a reason why. And the root cause here, I think, was the manager. And I'm glad they got rid of him. So let's let's hope that we have a, a better second half of the season. Jonathan Armstrong on the Queen's Jubilee. What do you have for us? Well, I, I shout out to the Queen, of course, and thank her for her service. And I, I think I mentioned that a couple of podcasts uh, ago. But um, so instead, I'm going to shout out to tennis player Sir Andy Murray and why am I mentioning Sir Andy Murray at this stage? Well, in 1996, Andy Murray was nine years old. He hid under his desk in school whilst a gunman ran amok through his school. He and his brother obviously survived. But uh, 16 of their fellow pupils were killed and one of their teachers. And very bravely, he's spoken out about those horrific events recently, obviously prompted by uh, events in the US. And maybe I'm reading Tom's mind, but I'm wondering if he's going to have something to say about that. Now, of course, our thoughts and prayers are with everybody affected by school shootings then and now what the uk did 26 years ago is we had a judge-led inquiry we don't have all the answers we've still had two shootings since then but we've had no mass shootings with handguns in the 26 years since in the us you've had 200 this year and i haven't got the answers Andy Murray hasn't got the answers, but it's time to find them. In the UK, we limited the use of handguns or prohibited the use of handguns, and we limited the use of other guns, sporting rifles, for, for, uh, for example, where you had to have somebody countersign your gun certificate. Uh, you could have your lawyer done it, uh, do it. In 26 years, I've countersigned one certificate, and I regretted it. And why I regretted it isn't the subject for a podcast. But as I've said, a shout out to Andy Murray for being brave enough to speak about these issues. It was for him then a horrific time. Clearly, he's still dealing with the trauma. But let's find a way not to have anybody else to suffer. I don't know that, what that way is, but you need to get the brightest minds together and work out. A, a, an end to all of this. 
So for my shout out and rant, I want to honor those who died in Uvalde. Neva Bravo, age 10. Jacqueline Carazes, age 9. McKenna Elrod, age 10. Jose Flores Jr., age 10. Eliana Garcia, age 10. Uzziah Garcia, age 10. Amory Garza, age 10. Xavier Lopez, age 10. JC Lovainos, age 10. Tess Mata, age 10. Miranda Mathis, age 11. Althea Ramirez, age 10. Annabelle Rodriguez, age 10. Mate Rodriguez, age 10. Lexi Rubio, age 10. Layla Salazar, age 11. Jelaya Seguro, age 10. Eliana Torres, age 10. Rogelio Torres, age 10. Those were the children who died in Uvalde. There were two teachers also gunned down, and I wish to honor them. Irma Garcia and Eva Mirlis. Well, that concludes this episode of Everything Compliance. I look forward to our next episode together. Thank you all. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and indeed the first 100 episodes of Everything Compliance. I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce several awards for podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network from the Communicators 2022 Awards. Win Hassan won for Hidden Traffic, Karen Woody for Classroom Insiders. The Trial of the Century, the Enron Trial, where I uh, talked to Lauren Steffi, who covered the trial, won. The FCPA Compliance Report won in business. And my passion project, the Hill Country Podcast, won in two, Lifestyle and Society and Culture. Finally, The Compliance Life won an award in business as well. Understanding Lyme Disease, the five-part series on that devastating disease, also won in two categories, Medicine and Science and Storytelling. So I hope you'll check out some of the other award-winning podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. Everything Compliance is also a winner for a top panel podcast in business as well. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.